I wrote a joke that's not for the podcast. Hooray. What popular fantasy author? I'm guessing Asimov, but I don't know. Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) That will not be making it in. Why did you not think that was appropriate for the podcast, John? (laughs) Why did you think it was appropriate for other humans to hear? Welcome to episode 139 of the Nerdfest podcast. This week's nerds are... John Farben, Dan Watkins, Peter Johnson, Andy Chandler. And I'm Hazel Chandler. On today's show, we will be sharing our thoughts on what we have been enjoying recently, including Hijack, Prehistoric Planet, 1976, The Flash, and Asteroid City. Plus, we have our thoughts on the new Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. And once again, we have a split opinion on this. So let's start the show. It's the jazz version. (laughs) Can you do a jazz version of the uh, intro? Uh, yeah, because you don't yeah. have enough on your hands. <laughs> and, and the reggae version and the punk version <laughs> with now. a drum solo, maybe, but all with kazoos. I have a question about our theme song. Actually, oh, yeah. I've listened to lots and lots of episodes, and I know most of the quotes. Oh yeah, from most of the films that turn up, but there's one that I just I don't know what it is. Okay, I'm Batman. Uh, I'm Batman. I know <laughs> the aliens one. I know uh-huh. the Yoda one. I know and. There's one where there's a bunch of people saying something at the same time. Is it, is it hello, Bruce? Hi, Bruce. Hi, Bruce. So they're talking to the shark from Finding Nemo, who's called Bruce, after Steven Spielberg's agent. And Bruce Wayne is Batman's real name, which is why he says, I'm Batman. Hi, Bruce. Oh, so it's a clip, <laughs> it's, it's a clip from Finding Nemo. Yeah. Right, yeah. Never figured that one out. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Very clever. Yeah. Don't you take your 139 episodes. I know, I just never thought to ask before. <laughs> Did they ever find Nemo? Yes. Did you, at what, what point did you stop watching the film? <laughs> did, did you they... just think, oh, he's at the dentist's office, there's no hope, and turn the film off? Oh, do, oh yeah, he's in, a, he's in a fish tank, isn't he? It's a terrible film. Oh. Oh. oh, no. John's lack of soul applies again. Yeah, what did you think fish of pun. soul? Yes. <laughs> did I see soul? I must have done. It, was on Christ- it popped up on Christmas Day on Disney Plus, didn't it? it? Did. Yeah. It did. So I think I watched it and vaguely enjoyed it. I liked the music, I think. Okay. Going back to jazz. Jazz, yeah. He was a jazz musician. No, I'm just wondering whether I've seen Soul or not. I know I've seen the other one that's all inside the head, which inside I'm kind of slightly confused with. Being John Malkovich. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's, that's the sequel. Mm. It's going to be a crossover. Elemental hasn't done well, has it? So is it the first Pixar one that's gone into cinemas rather than popping straight up on Disney Plus? It's the first one since Lightyear. Onward just managed to creep out before COVID. And lots of people liked Onward, but I didn't like it very much. Mm. And then Soul, Luca, which is amazing, and Turning Red, which was also very good. It's all went straight to streaming. That's that's Pixar, yeah. I thought that was was Disney. And then Lightyear, because it's an IP 
went into cinemas didn't do that well because it wasn't very good. Because it confused everyone what it was going to be, I think. Yeah. Even watching it, it doesn't know what it wants to be. Mm-hmm. We've been meaning to go and see Elemental, but there's so much other stuff out at the mm-hmm. moment. Haven't found the time. Speaking of things coming out, there is oh. five days. I've got some news for us, Hazel. you've got some news for Andy I think (laughs) no there is five days until the greatest marketing campaign in the history of cinema comes to fruition and that is the release of Barbie and Oppenheimer are we excited I'm very excited I'm very 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 excited I was going to pick two movies to be up against each other (laughs) those would definitely be the two I've got our tickets when this podcast comes out which one for for both. Right. On the yeah. same day. We're doing a Barbenheimer day. Oh, yeah. Oh. yeah. Apparently, AMC in America have got there's at least 20,000 people that have bought tickets for both on the same day. Instead of listening to this episode immediately on release, we will be in the cinema. So, Barbie first or Oppenheimer first? Oppenheimer at 1.30 in the afternoon, <laughs> bit of a break for tea, and then Barbie at 6.45. Yeah. I think that's the order I would mm-hmm. do it in. You're going to a Barbie brunch, aren't you, I believe? A Barbie afternoon tea with champagne. Yes. Ooh. Excellent. Yeah. Pink champagne, of course. I hope so. I've dyed my hair pink for the occasion. Oh, that's why it's pink. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, I honestly, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Me and Peter will be in a field watching a random assortment of 80s and 90s bands. Like Aqua? <laughs> no, I think Aqua were, were, may have been They're this week. Aqua maybe. was this week, yeah. yeah. We're mm. going to the rockier one. Yeah, they have a rock one the week after, which is the one <laughs> we're going to. And of course, uh, the Oppenheimer stars had their premiere a few days ago and moved it up because the actors' strike was about to be imminently announced. I think it was like just a formality for it to be uh, officially announced. So they walked the red carpet and then they disappeared for the screening in solidarity with their fellow actors' union. Lazy, lazy. (laughs) 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 I don't get residuals. I do a piece of law work. I don't get paid 50p every time somebody reads it. Do you not get your check every two weeks for the podcast? No. Do you? Yeah, yeah we all do. Yeah. 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 Nice little learner, that is. <laughs> really? Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> Strike. I'm now just going to not. You should now just edit it so I don't say anything for the rest of the podcast. The odds of you keeping your mouth shut for the rest of the podcast are nil. We're replacing with an AI. (laughs) Yeah. It's just random bits of filth. (laughs) (laughs) But first time that both the writers and the actors have been on strike together in what, 60, 70 years, something like that? Yep. Ronald Reagan was head of the Actors Guild, I think, and the last time they both striked together, which means Fran Drescher's going to be president. Were you the same when you read that Fran Drescher was the president of the Screen Actors Guild, <laughs> that you kind of imagine her using the nanny voice for yeah. every pro- proclamation she makes? Well, I was um, wondering why This Is Spinal Tap was trending, and I forgot she was in that as well. Oh, so she was, yeah. yeah. But it's a great speech. I very much enjoyed her righteous anger. I don't know much about the acting thing, but I follow quite a few writers on Twitter mm. and it just seems kind of ridiculous the way the payment schemes yeah. work. And so like 80% of actors who are part of the union don't make the threshold for health insurance, which is something like $26,000 a mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Um, so like all these like people, I mean like people, Fox News, um, are <laughs> saying, you know, all these spoiled actors and, you know, they're yeah. all incredibly rich. Why are they kind of doing this? when actually they're doing it for 86% of the industry. They're standing by them because there's reached such a threshold with streaming and mm-hmm. artificial intelligence at the same time where the studios are saying that we can create all of these things with artificial intelligence or we only need you for one day, but we can use your likeness for the rest of your life and we'll pay you 
five dollars for that. Mm. It's all kind of coming to a head, and yeah, I fully support it. And I, yeah, it means that we might not get some films for a while, but. <laughs> Yeah. Crowd scenes used to have like hundreds of extras mm. and things if you want a big crowd scene, whereas now a load of that's done with CGI instead. Mm-hmm. That must have taken a lot of work away, sort of yeah. day players. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but that kind of thing's been around in the industry forever. I mean, back in, in the day before CGI, if they wanted a big crowd scene, they didn't have enough extras. They just dressed up a load of dogs in hats. Yeah. Because <laughs> on camera, yeah. they look like people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you want something that looks like a dog, you tape a bunch of cats yeah. together. Yeah. In Star Wars, it was all the painting on glass. And then yeah. they had a couple of little holes where people were stood and some of them would shuffle about a bit in the crowd to make the crowd look mm-hmm. animated. It's all a lie. What's a lie? Just Hollywood films. I assume every film's a documentary because I'm a very simple person. <laughs> so, how do they make sci fi movies? Elon Musk sends his camera into space. <laughs> Stitched to a Tesla. I don't know. I've not thought this through. No. <laughs> yes. I'd be more inclined to side with um, AI if they could prove some of the benefits that you can't actually get out of uh, real people. For example, if they took the likeness of Orlando Bloom and then used AI to make him into an actor. That would be impressive, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> instead of a soulless mobile mannequin. <laughs> Sorry, Orlando. <clears throat> a bit much. So. Some of you have been to the cinema this week? Yeah, speaking of a film that does not use CGI, I don't think anywhere, yeah, must really. Do. Well, I, I, I couldn't well, see it, which is the important yeah. thing. It, it's a film that, among other things, is concerned with AI. Quite an entity of AI, shall we say. Mm. Yeah, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Dan, Andy and I have been to see it. Dan, what did you think? I liked it. I had a good time watching it. It's... Not for me as good as the previous two mission films, Rogue Nation and Fallout. And up until the last big action sequence, which I had a really good time watching, I probably would put the fourth mission film, Ghost Protocol, above this one mm-hmm. as well. We watched them all in order for the first time a couple of years ago. It was one of the big lockdown watches. Mm-hmm. And first one's okay. Second one I don't like at all. And then from three onwards they got better and better Mm -hmm. for me so i had high expectations for this one the critical reviews have been very very praiseworthy so the expectations stayed high it didn't quite meet my expectations but i still enjoyed watching it even though i think some of the crew have been playing a lot of uncharted oh (laughs) yeah i've had a few days to think about it and i've been thinking about all the great things in it rather than the things that I didn't quite get on with, such as certain aspects of the plot. Yes, so I think that's a good there's sign. There's a decision with a major character that I am not on board with. Yeah, me too. I think I know what you mean. And I also love the fact that it felt like a vintage caper. Like There's a lot in this one that harks back to the original Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just loved how so much effort has been made to let you really, really see the action and see the actors do it. So in an age where you could digitize Tom Cruise and have him, you know, chuck himself off a mountain, uh, it's it's actually him doing it. And uh, I do applaud that those kind of efforts because the impact is greater for the audience. It will be for Tom Cruise. Well, <laughs> of hitting a rock at ninety miles an hour. Yeah, exactly. it, it, one day it will all go wrong. I thought the the action set pieces, which are you know the majority of the film, they were very inventive. Still, even though oh. this is the eighth one. You see, that, that'd one. probably be one of my little 
criticisms because mm. I have played all the Uncharted games and at least two of those action set uh, pieces, okay. I have played that exact thing as Nathan Drake. Ah, okay. Yeah. They were great. They were really well done. But I felt like I had seen them before, just in another medium. Uh, okay. I've seen them before in other films. Um, there are set pieces in this new Mission Impossible film that have been cribbed from The Italian Job and Jurassic Park 2 and um, GoldenEye. Oh, they're wrapped a bit, yeah. Yeah, they're wrapped a bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the film's definitely not for me. It's not my kind of thing at all. It's, it's totally about the spectacle and it's not especially well told. And that'll work for some people. And I've got no problem with people liking that and enjoying the film. That's fine. What I don't understand is the massively, massively glowing praise, the five-star reviews, the it's amazing. It's mm. A lot of the action scenes are too long for me as well. They go on for too long. They don't evolve quite enough. When you've got a really lengthy action sequence, you need to have lots of different phases. It needs to tell its own mm. little story rather than just be, we're doing a chase and we'll continue chasing until 12 minutes down the line when we stop the chase. Mm. As opposed to, say, upping the stakes, like, I don't know, he gets a bunny to protect halfway through it or something like a that. A rabbit's yeah. foot. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, we, yeah. Weirdly, I think another recent film, Extraction 2, did what you're talking about really well. There's a very, very, very long action scene about halfway through that, but it is split into different phases. Mm. There are lots of big single things that happen in that. Uh, Hemsworth with his arm on fire, but it all <laughs> kind of flows together as one big thing. It's not focused on the one moment. So mm. I can kind of see there's a bit of that, but not a lot. And it's, it's a little too indulgent. And the film as a whole is about an hour too long. It is a long film. It's two hours and 40 minutes. Yeah. I thought the action was actually more inventive than that. And I don't think Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise have made any secret of the fact that they start with action sequences. They're like, what do you want to do this time? Oh, I want to blow up this. Oh, I want to do that. Yeah. And then they build the plot around yeah. that. And I think that sometimes can work really well, sometimes to the detriment of the plot, which is, yeah, I had a couple of pro problems with. There's a sequence on, on a moving train, which is a hundred times better than the action scene on the moving train from Dial of Destiny. Oh, yes. And mm. the wow. fact that I could see it. I forgot yeah. there was a train in the new Indiana Jones <laughs> film. Yes. Robert's been watching through all the Mission Impossible movies and sequence. Almost every movie he's in some way disavowed or disconnected from the IMF. Is he's that true in this one as well? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like eight movies on the trot. He, there is lots of people chasing him, uh, including his own people. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> They've stopped putting up with it at this yeah. point. Yeah. He knows what he's doing with these films now. Uh, he's got good people around him. I thought Hayley Atwell she was really was good. She was brilliant. Oh, Best I part of the film. Yeah. 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 And Simon Pegg still have the cold dead eyes of a killer. <laughs> I like Simon Pegg. He's, he's, there's no point in being in this film. He's just background fellow. He doesn't do anything. I just watched Mission Impossible 3 again, and actually he's really good in that. That was his first one. You can see why he got adopted as a mascot by J.J. Abrams, because he makes such a difference <laughs> to the scene. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I liked him in this one, but I think it was Hayley Atwell that stood out. She, she's great in everything yeah. I've seen her in, yeah. but mm. even 10 years of Peggy Carter didn't quite put her on an A-list star level, but hopefully mm. this will. Yeah. Did anyone rewatch the Agent Carter series? Watched it when it came mm. out. Yeah, Never watched it since. The first series is worth a rewatch. A lot of my experience was tempered by a poor cinema experience. I really hope as much as anyone that cinemas do survive, but please don't cut your cost to the detriment of the audience. You know, it's stuff like just putting the right settings on the screen so that we can actually see the action. We're in the same screen as we were for Indiana Jones. The resolution wasn't right. There was people on their phones constantly. And it's like, just have someone come into the cinema and relay that message. 
there's a bunch of stuff that cinemas can do to persuade people to come to the cinema because it's part of the experience. You know, we have to see this on the big screen. We can't wait a few months for it to be on Disney+. Plus. Whereas my last couple of experiences, and I'm talking about one cinema, not branding all the cinemas with the same brush. Just please do more for the audience experience because everything that you're doing to cut costs at the moment is adding to keeping people away. I know it's I know it's tricky to get front of house staff at the moment and mm. cinemas are lovely places, but they can be really tough places yeah. to work. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you don't notice people popping into screenings anymore. We always sit at the front, partly because it's cheaper. Partly because then you don't get any phone screens mm. around you because mm. you're always the people closest to the screen. But in Mission, there were a lot of chats and yeah. conversations going on. We ended up moving seats off oh, to the wow. side just to be able to focus on the film. Because weirdly, for such a big action film, there's about 40 minutes at the start where it's just people talking quietly with no background <laughs> noise and you can really hear the other people in the cinema. Aww. It's really quiet when you can hear the people behind you having a chat. Should we do some recommendations? Yes, please. Yeah, yes. Let's kind of start chronologically in the prehistoric period. Uh, okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> I've got a combined recommendation of a book and a TV show. And like Hazel says, they're both set in the distant, distant, distant past. The book is The Rise and Reign of the Mammals by Steve Brissati. Uh, a few years ago on this very podcast, I reviewed his first book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. But this one looks at how mammals evolved from the pre-Triassic 250, 300 million years ago through the age of the dinosaurs, how they survived the asteroid, and by the Ice Age became the dominant life forms on Earth. So as well as telling the story over hundreds of millions of years, he explains how we know what we know about these animals and highlights some of the scientists who have made discoveries and are still making discoveries about ancient mammals. There's loads of fascinating details in there, uh, one section that really stuck in my mind explained how whales became whales. They started as small land animals and over a period of millions and millions of years got into the water, lost their legs, got bigger and what? are almost unrecognisable. But from the fossil record, thanks for speaking whale. <laughs> um, from the fossil record, there, there's things that you can trace all the way through all of these different stages. And you also see how some of the things that make us mammals have evolved things like the way we eat through the evolution of teeth and certain structures of bones in our ears you can see in fossil mammals from the Jurassic period and it's just fascinating to think about where we sit in that evolutionary chain on the history of earth that's half of my recommendation the other one links to it because Steve Prasati is a consultant on it and that's prehistoric planet on apple tv plus you might have seen it pop up on your app if you've got Apple and thought, mm, yeah, it looks like walking with dinosaurs, I'm not really going to bother if you remember walking with... Walk with the dinosaurs, <laughs> fuck the dinosaurs, talk with the dinosaurs. Dr. Doolittle in Jurassic Park 7 confirmed. <laughs> that show came out about 20 years ago. It was a big sensation with pioneering CGI and it probably looks pretty dated now. I'm going to out your system. <laughs> I was just looking at him, seeing whether he's going, shall I, shall I, shall I? corpse first. No, carry on. This is not that. This is a David Attenborough nature documentary with his trademark narration. Sold. Sweeping cinematography, epic theme music composed by Hans Zimmer, 
but it's about dinosaurs. How does the theme tune go? <laughs> uh, he, he uses these razor-sharp bits of metal I'm about to use on you if you don't let me finish, John. You're going to Wolverine me. I'm going to Wolverine you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Attenborough with dinosaurs, and it's a really faithful recreation of the Attenborough formula. I wouldn't call it a pastiche. It's not tongue-in-cheek. It's not self-referential. It just It's exactly like a frozen planet or a blue planet, but it's set millions and millions of years ago using state-of-the-art visual effects to show what these creatures would have looked like. And John Favreau is one of the exec producers, so I'm wondering whether some of the tech he used for his Lion King Jungle Book remakes has been used to help create this stuff. I'd recommend watching it on the biggest, most high-def screen you can because the detail of this VFX is absolutely astonishing. And then at the end of every episode, like with those other documentaries, they have a little science bit that tells you, again, how we know what we know and Hmm. what has been the science behind the stories that Attenborough has been telling us. And there's two seasons, five episodes each. Each one's about 40, 45 minutes, and each one looks at a different part of the planet. Hmm. Like deserts, swamps, the Badlands, ice, oceans... And so every Star Wars planet. <laughs> every Star Wars planet is represented. And I can't tell whether the landscapes are actual modern Earth or whether they've CG'd those as well. And I guess that's probably a good thing because it's either blended seamlessly or it's really, really good CGI. Hmm. Do you get all the trademark Attenborough stuff? A mother looking after a young who's got to survive the predators, animals searching for food, all the stuff you'd expect on one of these BBC Studios wildlife shows, but it's dinosaurs. Is What's not a, to love? Is there a high-stakes baby iguana escaping from snakes situation? Oh, <laughs> yeah, um, season two, episode two, there is a super high-stakes, lots of little baby sauropods who've oh. got to make their way across a big volcanic area to get to their mum's herd, and there's oh predators gosh. on the way, and oh my god, yeah. Is there a bit where the caveman fights a giant monkey? Yes. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> do the dinosaurs uh, yeah. have feathers? They do. Uh, some more than others. Okay. So T-Rex, only a few feathers. The ones that have been proven through fossils to have been completely feathered, like Velociraptor, are fully feathered in the show. So mm. I, I think they're sticking to the science based on the limited amount I know. They've certainly got a lot of scientific consultants on there, but I'm pretty sure there's some dramatic narrative effect in there as well. If David Attenborough is narrating every... Yeah, David. If Sir David Attenborough is narrating every national treasure, docu- Sir David Attenborough. If national treasure, Sir David Attenborough is narrating every nature documentary going, which he seems to have cornered the market in, is it going to be like one of these skills that dies out when he finally passes? Stop it! No, he will live forever. We don't need to answer that question. Okay, peace be upon him. Do we see national treasure, Sir David Attenborough, stroke a herbivore? No, he only appears in the introduction. Oh, he's not. Okay. I'm trying. I can see John looking at me he's and I'm going to try and... He's feathered. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's wearing a chicken suit. <laughs> uh, and he stays, does he saddle up a Brachiosaurus? I wish. <laughs> he, he looks at skeletons at the start while he introduces the show. Oh, goth. And then it's like a... And it fades to like a dinosaur appearing over the skeleton and the skeleton dinosaur gets up and walks around. That's what I'd have done. <laughs> should work for Apple TV, John. I should do. You could do the theme tune. <laughs> I wonder how it would go. <laughs> I wonder. At least you didn't try a Welsh accent. 
I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so those are my recommendations. Uh, very cool book about paleontology and a very impressive TV series. They both sound great. Um, I'm probably more inclined to try the TV series only because I am woefully, embarrassingly out of the habit of reading at the moment. I've recently started War of the Worlds and I'm getting through it at a glacial pace because I don't read anymore because of smartphones and attention spans. But I would love to read that book if um, I ever started reading again. So I might buy it and put it on a shelf, which is close to reading. Mm. John ever does. You could, do yeah. an, you could do an audiobook and could listen to it. I've never audiobooked, but maybe I should. Yeah. Pictures then, aren't as good. <laughs> it's very true. Yeah. And then you can just have it in your ears. I can't get on with audiobooks. No. I'd find my attention drifting and I can read a lot quicker than I can listen. You can change the speed of the reading. But then it sounds like you're having a book read to you by Alvin and the Chipmunks. That sounds like fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dinosaurs are very exciting. They're feathers now. <laughs> and then at the end they go, if I could walk with the dinosaurs. <laughs> I don't know if Peter tried to think it's any way. Well, yeah, we're, I mean, we're, we're, we're right going to have to Photoshop John in a Rex oh, Harrison God. outfit, aren't we? I'm really interested in um, evolution science and uh, really want to read that book. I just know I'm not going to. I'm... I will buy try, it. Try it as an audiobook. Pretend it's 10 podcasts. Don't listen to podcasts either. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from this one. Put a screensaver of pictures of skeletons on your screen and pretend it's a really long documentary. Excellent. Oh, can it be subtitled? Can yes, I get it, it, it could be subtitled. You can get someone to read it in Mongolian and then it'll be subtitled. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> perfect. Buy so the Kindle it. book and then read it on your phone and it'll be just like you're playing on your phone. You've just hacked reading for me. Nice one, John. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, um, how many feathers on a chicken suit for this one? I would go with nine feathered chicken suits for each. Ooh, Both very good. good in different ways, doing similar things, but dinosaurs. Asteroid City, let's go there. Asteroid City is a Wes Anderson movie in all senses of the phrase. Personally, I now love his stuff, particularly the Grand Budapest Hotel and the French Dispatch. Whilst I don't quite think it measures up to those, this is well worth seeing if you enjoy his quirky style. The plot concerns Schwartzman's character, who brings his prodigy son and three daughters to the Junior Stargazer Convention. He falls in love with a fading movie star as his son falls for a daughter. Suddenly an alien pops up and steals a meteorite fragment. What? It doesn't really make a lot of sense, (laughs) really, but it's still hugely engaging and hugely enjoyable. Everything takes place in a desert town, only notable for the asteroid that landed there 5,000 years ago. It's entirely constructed in a 50s atomic style, in a flat, artificial world with fake 2D mountains on the skyline, all shot in widescreen with a washed-out pastel palette. The camera only ever pans and dollies or does 90-degree whip pans, maintains the symmetry and rigid planimetric geometry that Anderson's famous for throughout. I know it's a cliche to say every frame looks like a painting, but it really does in these movies. It has a phenomenal cast, with Anderson lifers like Jason Schwartzman, Tilda Swinton, Ed Norton and Adrian Brody, joined by Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hanks, Margot Robbie, Brian Cranston, Maya Hawke and dozens more. All shot on a 25 million budget. Some, like Jeff Goldblum, only get seen very briefly, but they still all showed up for it. I said I felt this didn't quite measure up to his most recent movies, but I had to watch them both twice to fully appreciate them. And it's quite possible I'll grow to love this one as much too in repeated viewing. Uh, Dan, have you you seen it? How did you find it? Liked it, didn't love it. There are elements that I thought were really good. I like Rupert Friend's character. 
a lot. He's kind of a singing cowboy type. Oh, yeah. And he has a good relationship with Maya Hawke's character. She's a teacher trying to keep control of her class. I love the alien stuff. It was just so weird in amongst all of the little personal dramas that were going on that suddenly an alien turns up. And that just added an extra element to it. There are other bits I wasn't so sure about. I liked Brian Cranston in it, mm-hmm. but the framing device that he's part of... It didn't need for it, me, really. it, Yeah, I would have preferred just the main story. I know it was all part of what the film was meant to be, but you could have taken those bits out and I would have probably enjoyed it more. It's great that he's got so many people who love working with him, but there's a bunch of people where you think, you didn't need to be there, you didn't add anything. Bob Balaban, who's been in loads of Wes Anderson films, mm. he just sits in a chair next to Jeffrey Wright but that's like and has no gap. lines. <laughs> he doesn't even stand up. The fact that he's there, you're going, oh, it's him, I recognise him. What's he going to do? Oh, nothing. Mm. It's not even a cameo because they literally do nothing. Yeah. It, it, it took me out of the film mm. a little bit, going, oh, spot, spot the actor. Wes Anderson mm. rep player. Yeah. Does it make you believe less in their characters when you know that it's a Wes Anderson thing to put these uh, character actors well, the, in? The whole thing's so artificial anyway, in a way. Uh, you know, it's all kind of reveling in its lack of realism. What I love in films. Yeah, I think it, <laughs> I think it depends on the actor a little mm. bit. But someone like, say, Steve Carell, mm. I don't know whether he quite clicked with the aesthetic as much and it felt like Steve Carell doing some lines Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's an approach that it doesn't gel with absolutely everyone, but it's I think it's worth every major Hollywood actor giving it a try <laughs> because you never know who's going to just click with it and yeah. be absolutely amazing. Yeah. Like Ray Fiennes in Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have thought he would have worked in that kind of environment. How's uh, Tom Hanks? He's very Tom Hanksy. Mm-hmm. It's fine, thanks. Him used today. Yeah, yeah so he's doing well. <laughs> but I mean, to be honest, for the majority of characters... <laughs> he's part of the typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> For the majority of characters, I don't know if Peter feels the same, they're not really there long enough for you to make a, a massive impression. And that's all part of it. Uh, yeah. But they're kind of just in and they're out. So I don't think that detracts for it for me. No. That almost helps sell the idea that it's this artificial world that's not real. Mm-hmm. I know Andy has a checkered past with any form of quirk. <laughs> How do you find Wes Anderson? I've enjoyed some Wes Anderson films, um, but in recent years I've really grown to be... Hugely irritated by it, unfortunately. Uh, I've got this could great... be you changing, not the movies. No, it's him. <laughs> um, I, I think he's, he's just getting more and more Wes Anderson and it's becoming too much for me. Uh, I've, I've got a huge appreciation for uh, his uh, unique visual style. This dollhouse thing brought mm. to life. I hate his writing. His stories don't work. And the whole total deadpan lack of emotion stuff um, just, just pisses me off. <laughs> I despised the French Dispatch. Oh. I really hated it. And I've, I got on quite well with Grand Budapest Hotel. I really enjoyed The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. I watched about two thirds of The Fantastic Mr. Fox before rage quitting because I hated it. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I think the more Wes Anderson-ish his films are, the less I like them. Hmm. How Wes Anderson-y was this one? Very. The, the most. <laughs> yeah. okay. it's, it's probably not for me then. I, I, I do appreciate his skill. It's not that he's bad. It's just that, um, yeah, the, the, the utter lack of emotion. Just, no, not for me. I mean, what, what's interesting on those visuals is there was a big trend going around on the social medias in the lead up to this coming out of do this, but make it Wes Anderson uh-huh. and people trying to imitate that style and nobody got it. 
there's nobody who's quite got the exact eye he has. And you see that in this film. There's images that nobody else would be able to create. Have you seen the website? Wes Anderson in the Accidentally real world. Accidentally, Wes Anderson. Yes, that's yeah. It. Yeah, yeah. And there's a book as well, which yeah. has a foreword by Wes Anderson. Yeah. <laughs> of course. I feel the same way about David Lynch. Like, I love David Lynch, but if someone just says something is Lynchian, I know I'm probably going to hate it because I know it's going to be a shit photocopy of David Lynch. So, where do you stand on Wes Anderson? Um, I haven't seen a few of his more, more recent ones. I really loved Rushmore. Mm. Um, and Steve Zizou, you liked as well. Yeah, I loved that one. Mm. You know those films that you always go, I'll, I'll get around to watching that at some point, and then you never actually do. And you watch some trash instead. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've got to be in the mood. I feel like I want to give it my full attention rather than stick it on at 10 o'clock at night or something like that. What was nice for this one is we went to the cinema to watch it. And I think other than Fantastic Mr. Fox, it's probably the first Wes Anderson film I've actually seen on the big screen. Hmm. And it was nice to watch it in a cinema environment. Everything's best viewed on the cinema screen, but things like that probably you'd get even greater enjoyment from. Because when we watched Dune in the cinema when it first came out, uh, I really, really enjoyed it, apart from the non-ending. But we tried re-watching Half it. Half-ending. Mm-hmm. Partial ending. Part yeah. two, November. Dot, dot, dot. We tried watching it on the TV um, a few months ago and just, just didn't get into it. Mm. Um, and because we weren't quite so dazzled by the, the visuals. Mm. So it, it could be that I would enjoy Wes Anderson in the cinema more than I would at home. I remember going to see Tron Legacy in IMAX with 3D and Dolby Surround. Go, this is amazing. And then watching it on TV a few months later, this is shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, how many recognisable A-list actors turning up to play an idiosyncratic professional in a small town community out of 10? If you're a Wes Anderson fan, probably nine. Okay. If you're Andy, probably a fan of four. <laughs> Okie dokie. So, chronologically, we go to 1976 next. Ah, yes, very good. That's me. This is not the year. Um, uh, It's uh, a film uh, which is effectively the polar opposite of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part (laughs) 1. It's a Chilean drama set in (laughs) initial dictatorship. Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. Uh, In which a middle-class housewife named Carmen, primarily concerned with small details of her comfortable bourgeois life, is slowly drawn into aiding the resistance. A priest she knows and trusts asks her to tend to an injured young revolutionary to whom she becomes increasingly sympathetic. Uh, The film begins with Carmen shopping for paint, being very specific about the exact shade of pink she wants, while off-screen, out in the street, a desperate crying woman is snatched by the police. This dynamic is central to the story. Well-off people going about their lives in willful ignorance of the horrors being perpetrated around them. This film is only an hour and a half long, but despite that, it's uh, very focused on a slow burn. As Carmen grows more and more sympathetic to the revolutionaries and their cause, so the facade of her own life is destabilised and the dramatic tension and her own paranoia increase exponentially. It draws a straight line from, oh, go on, try a slice of my housekeeper's cake, to an atmosphere of threat and fear of discovery. Uh, It's grounded, realistic, quiet, knows exactly what it's trying to achieve and does so very effectively. It's worth anyone's time. Fortunately, it's available to watch in the comfort of your own home on BFI Player. And I'd like to segue into a secondary recommendation of BFI Player itself. What does BFI stand for? British Film Institute. Okay. (laughs) What do you think Were you thinking of a theme song? (laughs) Bring food immediately. (laughs) Uh, I know we've all got too many streaming subscriptions on the go already, but BFI is offering a free 14-day trial, after which it's only 4 99 a month, 
It's an exceptional repository of classic international art house and independent cinema. You can find works from loads of the great directors, Orson Welles, Akira Kurosawa, Agnes Varda, Wim Wenders, David Cronenberg, Yasujiro Ozu, Buster Keaton, F.W. Murnau, Fritz Lang, Ingmar Bergman, Federico Fellini, Chantal Ackerman, Francois Truffaut, and many more. Part we five. didn't start the fire. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got an interest in the history of cinema or a desire to watch some of the best films ever made, this is for you. It also carries a lot of the best recent independent films and a wealth of international pictures. Do you want to watch an Egyptian film about a woman struggling to cope after her husband is turned into a chicken? Who yes. <laughs> It's on BFI Player, so I assume you'll all want a moment to go sign up. If you have Amazon Prime quite regularly, it'll pop up at like 99 pence a month for six months or something like that. It's really worth giving it a try. And yeah. it, it, even if it's not doing that at the moment, uh, mm-hmm. you get a two-week free trial with no obligation to continue. And um, if, you've, if you want to go watch films, The Stature of Citizen Kane... They're all on there. If you uh, really want to get into history of cinema or some freaky new stuff, there's a lot going on there. There's movie, obviously. There's BFI. Then there's Curzon Cinema, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. And there tends to be quite a lot of crossover between the stuff that's on a lot of them. Which it's kind of maybe looking through and picking which one has the particular things you want to watch on. No, all of them. Oh. Subscribe to one for six months, then take yeah. another one for this six months. Mm-hmm. They all do trials. Yeah, like a lot of the horror stuff that's on there. It's also on Shudder and it's also on other players. Is BFI Player like some of the other smaller, more independent streaming services like Mubi where things regularly go on and off or has it got a static library that's always there, do you know? It does have things that go on and off. I mean, it has a coming soon section, which is useful to see what's coming. But most things seem fairly static on there. And my secondary question is, with this Egyptian lady whose husband turned into a chicken... John probably knows a doctor who could help them communicate with each other. <laughs> would that help? I think it would. Yeah. yeah. Provided he speaks Egyptian as well as chicken, yeah. of course. Uh, I can't sing it in Egyptian, unfortunately. <laughs> Try the accent. Try it in chicken. <laughs> I'm going to take the first reference to this out. None of this is going to make sense. <laughs> That may have made no sense to you, but some chickens have just found that very sexy. <laughs> if you go out into your back garden, you might find some extra eggs have been laid. That's how it works. That's how it works. <laughs> Feeling sexy, going to drop a few more eggs. Yeah. <laughs> there must be a height in battery farms. <laughs> anyway. Uh, anyway. I feel like we've commented on BFI player, but not on 1976. Um, well, 1976 is a good film. Uh, go watch it. It's the year my parents met. The year that uh, VHS was invented. The year before Star Wars came out. These things are not prevalent in the movie. Well, apart from John's parents. Yeah, they're in the... My mum's the woman in the background getting carted away by Pinochet. <laughs> who is my dad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know nothing of Chilean history. I've heard of Pinochet, mm. and that's about it. So. Is he the one who was a puppet? I know Pinochet's fairly recent history when there was some... He did some dodgy stuff, didn't he? He was not a nice man. He led a military coup in 1973 and um, remained president until 1990 and purged left-leaning political parties and uh, then any dissidents and anyone that pissed him off and people were disappeared and murdered and all sorts. It's a laugh riot, this film. And when you're watching... These films, Andy, do they send you down a Wikipedia rabbit hole of finding out all of the background of and what happened afterwards and the history behind it, or do you just pick it up 
And I'll always go read a little bit, but because I'm not into reading at the moment, I get distracted by <laughs> cat videos on YouTube. Yes. As long as the cats are depicting the history that you're trying to learn about, it's all right. Yeah. What noise does a pigeon wearing a helmet make? We know the answer. Should we just move oh, on? I do know that. I know I'm setting myself up here, but I'm not sure I've heard this one yet. A military coup. Oh. <laughs> Shouldn't have asked. I only know that because I can walk, talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> snip snip I wager all of these are staying in you know it'll just be easier if, if, if we in- integrate it so deeply that it cannot be extricated um, how many very expensive seats at the BFI IMAX at Waterloo in London out of 10 1976 gets 8 out of 10 and uh, BFI player gets 9 out of 10 only loses a point because it doesn't have an app and you have to access it through a web browser Hmm. How much did those seats cost? I don't know. I've never been. I just it's, oh. it, <laughs> it's where they have all the big, 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 big premieres. Yes, so I, 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 it can't be cheap. We went to see Ocean at the end of the lane last night, and we were in row E, seat eight, something like that. So we were like front and central, and our tickets were thirty-seven pounds each. It's back in London in October. And the same seat in the same space is £79. Mm. It's twice as expensive to go to see a play in London. London. It's sometimes cheaper in Sunderland, isn't it? If you're prepared to go to Sunderland. I mean, that's a big F, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the cost is uh, increased by the necessary travel insurance. (laughs) (laughs) Right, let's go into the speed force. Do we have to? (laughs) So I'm going to talk about The Flash, which I'm going to surprise a few of you because I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would going by kind of the general reviews and tone of other people that have been to see it. Oh, so Mm. it was like at least a two-star movie. This is a film that's been about 10 years. In fact, I I think actually we're talking about like the early 80s have been trying to get a Flash movie made. But certainly this version of The Flash has been planned from the start of the... DC Extended Universe. I think he had a cameo in Batman versus Superman mm, mm. and has appeared since. And it was originally due to come out in 2018. Lost directors, lost actors, was rewritten massively and then delayed because of COVID and then reshot massively and then rewritten and reshot again. So it's been a long, long journey to get this version of The Flash to the screen. And it it's kind of come out to bad box office and fairly tepid reviews, mediocre Mediocre reviews. I'm probably going to go into the plot in quite a bit of detail. And so there's some spoiler warnings. I'm not going to say I don't think anything that's not in the trailer, but the trailer was pretty spoilery. (laughs) (laughs) So the plot basically is Barry Allen played by Ezra Miller. Boo. (laughs) (laughs) That's official name now. Yeah. 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 They've got some problems. In terms of gender, I'm going to say he. Character is he, the actor is a they. Yeah, so if I'm referring to he, I'm not misgendering Ezra Miller, I'm referring to the character, because that's very important. It is, I don't know why I said that in a slightly sarcastic <laughs> voice. <laughs> <laughs> you just can't help yourself. Is this bro? how you do uh, like lawyer presentations? Yeah. <laughs> because this is important. This is very important. <laughs> So Barry Allen is in his late 20s. He is a member of the Justice League, but he sees himself very much as a Justice League dog's body. So we actually open up with a very fun sequence where he has to tidy up Batman's mess 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just hugged upside down. In, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so kind of, kind of a fun sequence where uh, there's been an explosion at a hospital and as a result, the hospital has tipped at an angle and all the babies in the neonatal ward what? have fallen out of the hospital window, <laughs> have fallen from the hospital to the ground and uh, Barry Allen has to use his flash speed to rescue about four or five babies and a dog that have all fallen to the ground. Is this true? This is true. Oh is this based, didn't there used to be a game and a watch game a bit like that? A little where bit Where babies like that, would yeah. come from the top yeah. and you had right, to right. move left um, and right and catch them. I, I can't confirm this is true because I've heard about the bit where he puts a baby in a microwave. He does, yes. What? What? Yeah, but it's actually like sixes Batman level of silliness. It's really, really funny because it like oh, when is babies in a microwave not funny? <laughs> well, I was gonna say, the babies are dropping. And he looks oh. at one baby and there's a exploding gas canister with flames heading towards the baby. <laughs> And then he looks in a different direction and there's another baby and there's a bottle of sulfuric acid tipping out over the baby's head and then it cuts to another one and there's a load of syringes and knives from an operating table flying towards him. What a dangerous neonatal world, And then in another direction and like there's a helper um, emotional therapy dog falling and he's kind of looking back and forth trying which one should he rescue first. And that bit was really funny. Yeah, I can actually see that. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, now I see why they didn't want realism for the CGI. Like 3, 7 and 10. Yeah, yeah. That bit had a load of comedy and fun energy to it that sadly the rest of the film didn't have. Mm. So it starts off with that and then we get some cameos. We see um, Alfred and Batman and Wonder Woman appears very, very briefly, which is a bit of a shame. Is that, that just to set who they are in this universe? No, I think it's just to get some cameos in there and establish that it's the Justice League. The other important thing to mention with Barry Allen is that his mother was murdered when he was a child and his dad is in prison for that murder. Yeah, that's always been part of his backstory. Yeah, which his father insists he did not commit. And unfortunately, there is some CCTV footage that could exonerate his father, but doesn't work um, because the camera is pointing slightly in one direction. So um, when Barry Allen has a bit of an emotional moment when his father looks like he's going to lose his latest appeal to be released from prison, he runs so fast that he realises he can actually run backwards in time. The reverse speed force. Science, yeah. Worst (laughs) thing about the Superman movies. Yeah. Have either of you run so fast? (laughs) That you've travelled in time. No, because it's well, impossible. Exactly. Try running faster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just because you can't run that fast, Peter. Because physics. <laughs> Does he run faster than 88 miles an hour? I believe so, yes. That's so how it works, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he also mm-hmm. does that when he wants to... Arms are like DeLorean's visual joke. That didn't work even visually. <laughs> 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 and despite Batflex's warnings... About messing around in time, he decides to go back in time and change things so that his mother isn't murdered. Can he Ooh. run forwards again? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so he goes back in time, does some shenanigans with a can of tomato sauce, and runs forward in time back to the present. I have a question. Does he have to run backwards? <laughs> he has to run really, really slowly. Yeah. No, like, how does he know what time period to go? Does that dictate the speed at which he runs? So when he's running, you get to see, as he enters the speed force... Mm-hmm. Oscar-winning moment. Kind of on screens almost, like images of his life as he's running. So like see the famous it. time machine sequence. Yeah. Uh, and then he's like, yeah, that Stop. one. Stop. Yeah, break. Yeah. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Mm-hmm. So then as he's running back to his own time, uh, a massive <laughs> demonic creature appears. Oh, man. Whacks him in the head. <laughs> knocks him out of the speed force into 2012. 
where he finds everything is different. Did he arrive in the Avengers movie? No, sadly not. Mm. No, although the uh. Avengers movie does get referenced. <laughs> did, yes. did he arrive in the closing stages of the 2012 Olympics men's 100 metres and win? <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, actually what he did was he he, he appeared, he just slightly nudged um, Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt. Oh, and that's why Usain Bolt was so quick for that verse. Makes sense. But did he travel forward in time as a result? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Very confusing. So yes, it, we we are now in uh, 2012, but a slightly different 2012, where Eric Stoltz stars in Back to the Future. Nice. Really? Yes. Oh. Which was quite a good gag. Yeah. Barry Allen's parents were never murdered, and uh, Superman and Wonder Woman and Aquaman just do not exist. Barry goes to his parents' house, is delighted to discover his mother is alive, less excited to discover a very annoying 18-year-old Ezra Miller as young Barry Allen, who has no powers, but because his parents were never murdered, also doesn't have like the sense of guilt and sadness that the other Barry Allen has. So he's not just travelled in time, but he's gone universe jumping. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> time um, traveling multiversey thing mm-hmm. okay and he runs really fast because he's sad yes okay good <laughs> so at the, he is um trying to work out how to get himself back to the, the the present day when on a tv uh we see general zod alive on the planet michael, Sh- uh, michael shannon Ugh. so the inferior yes the, uh, the man of steel's general zod arrive on the planet uh, obviously, this being a planet where there is no Superman to stop General Zod. Oh, no. Then shit is going to go down. Everyone's going to have to kneel. Everyone is going to have to kneel, mm-hmm. like the fancy author I mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> in a joke that's also not going to be a joke that also didn't make the edit. <laughs> um, so to, f- to finish my po- plot to recap, I will get to the final important plot point where they discover whereas there isn't a Superman, there isn't an Aquaman and so on and so on, there is a Batman. So they go find Batman to try and get Batman to help them. Expecting to see Ben Affleck, they instead see Michael Keaton, who is excellent in the film and is by far the best thing in the film. So we're now in a universe where we have Michael Keaton playing Batman, not necessarily the Batman from the Tim Burton Batman films, because we are in a multiverse and it's not made clear that we are necessarily in that universe but was it good to see keaton back playing batman yeah he was having a lot of fun in it as i say it's clearly the best thing in the film what they do with a character i'm ambivalent about i have heard about various cameos that turn up towards the end of the film and i would have thought one of those would have been your favorite thing in the film i accept that he's in it for five seconds and doesn't say a word Oh, uh, I think oh. I know who you mean. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. never mind. In this universe there isn't a Superman. However, there is a Supergirl, and together they unite to try and destroy General Zod, save the universe, and get Barry Allen back to where he belongs. Because he can't just run back. He's not sad enough. Well, he can't run back to the future because General Zod is currently destroying the planet. And if he goes to the future, oh, it, it won't, won't be there. exist. Yeah, he won't, yeah, he, no, he won't yeah, exist. Yeah, he basically has to stop yeah, General Zod. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be like a bit contrary to the reviews. I really enjoyed it. It's <laughs> good. Yeah. yeah. Ezra Miller is annoying. Ezra Miller playing 18 year old Ezra Miller is doubly annoying, but huh. with a point. So you get two Ezra Millers for the price of none. 
but it's a fun plot. The plot, like the the way the multiverse works and the time travel works, they put a bit of thought into it. It's a nice bit where uh, Michael Keaton explains referencing the Avengers Endgame, saying basically it's mm-hmm. not like that. This is how it really is. The ending doesn't quite go where you expect it to go. You have got a you obviously you've got the big CGI fight scene that is necessary to have in all these sort of films. But the ending is more interesting and a bit darker and ambiguous than you would expect. There is a cameo right at the very end, which is quite good fun. So why do you think word has been so bad? I mean you obviously enjoyed it. I think there's been a lot of negativity in terms of how it fits in with the DC extended universe. And you can tell there's been chops and changes. I think Henry Cavill filmed Mm. it originally and they cut him out. Because he had a moustache. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The ending apparently was changed at the last minute to replace one actor with another. Do you think there's a bit of not just multiverse fatigue, but superhero fatigue with tying Marvel in as well? particularly multiverse fatigue and this is you know mm. had the misfortune to be the third or fourth mm-hmm. i'm kind of aware of the flashpoint story is kind of based yeah. on a, it's more of a time travel thing than a pure multiverse thing yeah which i tend to prefer anyway so this kind of has more right to exist than some of the mm. others sounds more fun than multiverse of madness what doesn't mm. yeah the fact that he's got a personal reason and that is never lost and it's, it's quite emotional in some places so for example when he goes and he sees in this universe that his mum's still alive and he has a scene with his mum where they're just doing mum things that's quite sweet Mm. and there's some good acting sequences sarah cal i believe plays supergirl and she's great in it be sasha sasha cal there's a a bit of a cameo i'm a bit dubious about in terms of harold ray missing a character cgi version of a dead person yeah where does it rank in the DCEU Zack Snyderverse? Better than Justice League? Yes, by a long way. It is better than most of them. It's not hard. I'll maybe put it in third place behind Wonder Woman and Aquaman. Okay. Hmm. It's in the top end of the DC Extended Universe films, but that... That is no more. Well, no, no, we've got two more films to come. Oh, do we? We've got Blue Beetle coming next month, which... I've barely heard about that. There was a trailer for the Blue Beetle before The Flash, and that was the first trailer or anything. I think it's kind of sneaking out. Mm. It's about Herbie the Volkswagen. Yeah. Okay. But he, he just swears a lot. It, what, mm. When he turned to porn. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, there was a second one. Uh, yeah, Aquaman 2, which I think is coming out the back end of this year. Because yeah. mm. originally the plan was to have Michael Keaton be like the Nick Fury of the DCEU. Mm. Obviously, he's in The Flash. He was going to pop up in... Aquaman 2 in a cameo that's now allegedly been cut. He was had a big role in Batgirl and they were going to make a kind of Batman Beyond live action film at some point. And then a six part TV series where it turns out he's really, really dull. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Much like Nick Fury. So have they given up the Batman Beyond? That's gone, I think, yeah. Yeah. Does Barry Allen, Mr. Flash, um, ever get tired after he's done running really fast? Yes. Oh, good. He that does. doesn't happen enough. I still hate super speed as a pal. He has to eat a lot of calories all the time. So he's constantly eating like chocolate bars and things like that to keep his energy level. That's kind of an unhealthy thing Mm -hmm. at a time when they are like banning advertising for high energy drinks and chocolate bars and stuff. It's a fantasy film, Peter. I know, but if you're arguing that kids might be influenced by seeing babies put in microwaves, (laughs) (laughs) then... 
He says he has to look after his teeth because when he's running at super speed, he ends up with lots of squished bugs. Oh. <laughs> so, John, how many falling babies out of ten would oh, you give the flash? Maybe seven. And how many would you save? <laughs> Six. <gasps> Is one of them Hitler? <laughs> I'm just thinking, I don't like one in seven people, generally. You know, one in seven people you meet is a real arsehole. And I'm just going to take the gamble. Well, you can tell one of them a baby. You can't, yeah, one of them looked at me a bit funny. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye, baby, baby, bye bye. Very musical today. Yeah, I am. What was that musical. other one? Really? That's the first song he's ever sung. <laughs> Do you know what the speed force is faster than? No. A plane that's been hijacked, Hazel. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Segway. Is it Hazel driving to watch Wimbledon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's fine. She's got 20 minutes. Who's going to win Wimbledon? I think Alcaraz might do John, it. that's not helping. <laughs> Who's going to win Wimbledon? No one. Oh, I think Djokovic is going to win Wimbledon. You're going to sound great. Yeah, a 50-50 oh, chance. Oh, terrible, depending on what, how Pete wants to edit you. <laughs> if I can be bothered to find out who won. <laughs> right. Hi, Jack. Hi. Hiya. I, I once met Mr Nicholson on a plane, and I went to say hello to him, and um, I caused a major terrorist incident. <laughs> oh, God. So, yes, I would like to recommend a new TV show on Apple TV Plus called... Hi, Jack. <laughs> Is it pronounced that way? <laughs> pronounced? Well, it's, it's written on the screen, H and then backslash Jack. So I generally typed that into IMDb and nothing came up. So it's, it's actually called just Hi, Jack, but they're just being funny with their typography. Nerds. Uh, so this stars Idris Elba as a businessman, Sam Nelson, who is returning from Dubai to what seems to be a fairly complicated marital situation only to find his first-class journey ruined by a bunch of hijackers on the plane. I hate it when that happens. So far, so conventional. For an action movie, not real life. Um, (laughs) (laughs) However, this has a really gripping story that is played out in real time. So the flight from Dubai to Heathrow is seven hours, and wouldn't you know it, that is exactly how long the show is. Idris Elba isn't just any ordinary businessman. He's a negotiator. So he's brought in when business deals go south to bring people back to the table. So these skills prove to be quite adaptable in the situation that he finds himself in. So we have the situation on the plane and we get to know some key characters, including the twatty posh character that is seated next to Idris's elbow. Uh, Idris's elbow. Right. <laughs> 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 literally is. Yeah. yeah, seated next to Idris's character, Sam. And we also get to meet various other passengers. The motivation of the hijackers isn't clear from the get-go, and I'm, I'm four episodes in now and it still hasn't been revealed, but they don't seem to be very experienced hijackers, and things do go wrong for them from the very first episode when they are forced to try and take control of the plane hours before they were actually supposed to. We also have people on the ground trying to work out what is going on and how to deal with an unresponsive plane that is flying over countries like Iraq, for example. And we also have Idris's wife's new partner, who is a metropolitan police officer, played by Max Beasley. Is he on the plane? He's on the ground. There's also national security and the Home Office who eventually get involved, as well as the Foreign Secretary. And you cannot tell me that the Foreign Secretary was not based entirely on Liz Truss. Yep. <laughs> Is the character played by just a floating turd in a toilet? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Might as well be. It's the character barely on screen disappears after 30 seconds. Yeah, never appears in the chamber. Got no idea what she's doing. Does a character disappear and then suddenly you look at your bank account and your mortgage has doubled for no reason? <laughs> yeah. It actually happened. <laughs> There was also air traffic control in Dubai and also uh, Heathrow. And there's uh, some great characters there who are trying to work out what is going on from the various signs that they are able to pick up on. When I first saw the synopsis of this, I thought it was going to be quite by the numbers. And, you know, I've probably seen similar things to this before. But I am so, so gripped by this. It is it's really well written. It's directed really well. I mean, you know where all the characters are at any one point in time. That's interesting because you've said a lot of characters there and a lot of things going on, but it's always very clear what's happening. You know what kind of state of mind that they're in. I haven't lost track yet. And yeah, as I say, that's that's quite easy to do with the simultaneous storylines like in real time. I'm just over halfway and I'm really, really excited for each episode. It comes out weekly, as is Apple's want. But according to TV critics who have seen the ending does stick the landing oh, hey. literally hopefully. quite appropriate <laughs> for this uh, well I, yeah i don't know how it lands but the end of the series is apparently awesome so if you like this genre and you want to lose yourself in a plot that keeps you guessing go for hijack yeah i'm loving it i think each Great. episode the tension is held really well it doesn't go to the ridiculous extent that the bodyguard did where everything became a bit unrealistic yeah. and heightened to a thought, stupid thought degree about the Whitney Houston. <laughs> <laughs> and i was like no no yes yeah you were a 24 fan. Yeah, it's a great age. Yeah, this oh, is playing with show. the real time. Yes, it doesn't have a, a ticking clock and it probably doesn't have split screen or anything like that. But the timeline is linear. It's less gimmicky maybe less gimmicky. than 24 was. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I think the tensions, the, the stuff they introduce. I agree with you that it's very good at communicating information as what's happening and who knows what at any given time. Yeah. And I like a bit where the other passengers don't trust Idris Elba. Yes, because he has his tactics and he doesn't want to reveal them to twatty posh characters. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's, you know, you think he's probably trying to keep thing, people safe, but they aren't cottoning on to that. So mm. his character has kind of become someone else that they are afraid of or suspicious of, which is interesting. So is it, is it mm. quite fun? It's quite Oh, is it a fairly serious... No, it's, it's kind of in the middle. I would say it's, it's not lighthearted. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, some dark things do happen. Uh, it's not grim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's genuinely tense. That's the main yeah. thing you feel from it. But it's enjoyable. It's an enjoyable ride for that tension. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It handles it really well. Yeah. One of the terrorists is Geordie, which I find quite fun. Yes. <laughs> Proper Geordie or that episode yeah, of Castle Geordie. seats. <laughs> the fucking seats are the best seats <laughs> so how many terrible nightmares about Liz Truss out of 10 <laughs> damn you Liz Truss hmm I think it's an 8 right now how many weeks in office you could have done <laughs> well, yeah. out of 10 how many times were you beaten by a lettuce <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm going to go for 8 uh, ah, right now excellent. It's been a high-scoring episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, surprisingly so for the Flash. Yeah, surprise yourself. That's a moral lesson. I, I just want to make it clear: it's not good. Oh, <laughs> in an objective sense. Now you say that, <laughs> but it is fun. Don't go and see it or anything. Wait until it's on <laughs> TV. <laughs>
That is all for this episode of Nerdfest. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in your podcast feeds in two weeks' time. Until then, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Nerdfest UK. Now, the most important thing that you will do today, in fact, the most important thing you'll do for your entire life is leave us a review. And that is because of what reason, John? I'll take you to the local zoo. And when you're there, do you know what we'll do? No. We'll walk with the animals. (laughs) the animals. John, John, no. Animals. John, no. Do you have an alternative? <laughs> no. She's <laughs> got to shop. He has to leave it in. Until next time, you've been listening to a man who has repeatedly come back in time to try and fix this podcast, but somehow just made it worse. <laughs> a man who tried to travel back in time 66 million years, only to find that Attenborough's voice was not there. A man that you have to listen to twice to appreciate fully. <laughs> and a woman who is seeing Barbie in less than six days time is so excited. <laughs> See you next time. Bye bye. Bye. I genuinely loved the Rex Harrison one because it was a film that was on constantly when I was a kid. It was like back when you couldn't have anything and we had about, you know, 10 or 12 VHS tapes with films on. One of them was a Rex Harrison Dr. Doolittle, so it was on repeat when I was about five or six years old. I do have a fondness for Push Me Pull You. <laughs> Page 16 of the Karma Sutra. Yep. <laughs>